Listen to this Acast show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dominic Nichols and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss more reported drone strikes inside Russia, crowdfunding supplies for Ukraine, and a new report from Ukraine's intelligence agencies about how Russia is developing malware to target the Starlink satellite communication system. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 11th of August, one year and 168 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our senior technology reporter, Gareth Caulfield. And joining us in the dawn's early light from Colorado Springs in the US, Anne Robles from Ukraine Frontline, a non-profit organisation that has been sending supplies, mainly medical in nature, to troops in Ukraine since the start of the full-scale invasion. I started by running through the latest news from Ukraine and beyond. Let me start with the uh, with the latest uh, latest from the ground in Ukraine and beyond. So a fire has broken out in a warehouse about four miles away from Vladimir Putin's official residency uh, in Moscow. This it broke out late last night. This is according to Russian state news. So by midnight local time, TASS are saying the fire had spread to well they're very specific. They say twenty one thousand five hundred square feet. I mean, it sounds like someone's been doing a Google Maps impression. But they were citing a statement from the emergency services. Now, it's not immediately clear what caused the fire. There's been no mention from either Russia or Ukraine about a drone strike there specifically, although Ukraine tends not to comment on these things anyway. But it does mark the second huge mystery fire in the area on Russian territory, very specifically near Moscow, in the last two days. So this warehouse in Odinsolvo, which is about 10 k's west of the city centre. It's a, a, a town or a suburb of Moscow, if you like. It lies directly between Putin's official residence, which is about 5 k's to the north, and Vinokovo Airport, which is a couple of k's just to the south. Possibly separately, we're not entirely sure, but Russia reported two Ukrainian drone, drone strikes that were heading for Moscow. They've not, they've not commented publicly about Oh, sorry, Kiev has not commented publicly about any any such attacks. Now, there was one drone. One drone was reportedly shot down over Moscow this morning. So the mayor of Moscow said there were no casualties or damage. You'll see images on social media showing the aftermath of the blast with emergency services attending the area. This is about five k's to the west of the, the city centre, west of the Kremlin, right in the city. Not immediately clear if either incident, that drone, that drone blast or the reported one over to the west near Putin's residence, if either incident was related to the temporary closure of Vunikovo Airport and Kaluga Airport, the latter being much further south outside the city. But there was more disruption to flights, which won't have gone unnoticed by uh, Moscovites. Now, it's continuing the pattern of recent days where there have been strikes 
led strikes inside Russia, but also all across Ukraine. And that has continued. So Mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, said there were no reported casualties and the air defences had done their job this morning. Ukraine's Air Force said Russia had fired KH-47 Kinzhal ballistic missiles and they said debris from one of those, either the missile or the, as in the, the ballistic missile or the air defence missile that shot it down, had landed in the grounds of a children's hospital, although no casualties reported. However, elsewhere across the country, civilian homes uh, were hit by missiles and artillery fire. For example, in Hezon, there were injuries there, no deaths reported. But similar strikes in Kharkiv up in the northeast have resulted in civilian deaths. In another incident, Zaporizhia City Council has released images of the aftermath of one of the strikes that hit the city yesterday, causing widespread um, destruction. There were many civilian deaths reported across the city of Zaporizhia yesterday, including two sisters, 19 and 21-year-old Svetlana and Kristina. You'll see film of them on social media busking in the street about an hour before the missile strike, also in that in that attack, Natalia Tereshenko, a 66-year-old teacher, was killed. An image from Reuters that we've got on our live blog, if you have a look at the Telegraph's live blog, live blog it shows uh, Ms. Tereshenko's covered body lying in the street next to her handbag and a nice orange umbrella. Uh, it's been quite warm in Zaporizhia this week, but a bit rainy, so it's wise to take an umbrella when popping out to the shops. All these, it sees everyday normal details that I think really bring it home, just how mindless and bovine these Russian war criminals are. But anyway, in a separate strike in the city yesterday, a well-known hotel was hit about 7.20 yesterday evening. Two missiles in close succession. One person killed, 16 injured. Very graphic footage on social media filmed from the nearby children's park shows uh, smoke from the first strike and then you see the, the, the arrival of the second missile. You see kids crouching when they, they see the missile and hear it going overhead and then hear them screaming in terror when it, when it explodes. Now this hotel, the Intourist Hotel as it's called, was very popular with journalists just like the restaurant that was hitting Kramatorsk in June that killed 11 including four children and our friend Victoria Amelina and also the attack on the Druzhba Hotel with the associated Corleone Pizzeria that were hit this earlier this week, the so-called double tap attack on Monday in Pokrovsk. Now, this Intourist Hotel in Zaporizhia is part of the Reichartz Group. If you just Google Reichartz, R-A-I-K-R-K-A-R-T-Z, Reichartz Hotel Zaporizhia, you'll find it. So if I can do that, you've got to wonder how Russian commanders failed to realise it was a civilian location, if just a Google search can tell you that. Now, just... Uh, as a reminder, so-called double-tap attacks have been used by Russia before, particularly in Syria, where a second strike hits the same location a few minutes after the first in order to, well, terrorise people, drive them away, kill first responders, emergency services, that kind of thing. There are suggestions now that Russia is deliberately targeting hotels and restaurants known to be used by journalists for this very purpose to avoid scrutiny, basically. Now, I say that not in any way to seek special pleading for journalists or to suggests or to suggest that if they are deliberately targeting journalists that makes the strikes more heinous or more notable than the strikes that killed Svetlana and Kristina and Natalia Tereshenko in Zaporizhia or the 14-year-old twins Anna and Yulia Aksenchenko in Kramatorsk but I say it only to keep us all up to date with the very latest thinking and the conversations that are going on here 
Anyway, the hotel was also regularly used by staff from the UN and other other non-government organisations. Denise Brown, the UN's uh, humanitarian coordinator for Ukraine, has condemned the strikes, saying, I'm appalled. I've stayed in this hotel every single time I visited Zaporizhia. My team uses it as their base for the frequent travels to the city. It was the UN base for the operation to evacuate civilians from the Azovstal plant in Mariupol in May last year. She said the number of indiscriminate attacks which have damaged civilian structures and you know, killed and injured civilians, in her words, have reached unimaginable levels. And she reiterated that all such attacks violate international humanitarian law. Now, Ms. Brown called on Russia to comply with its obligations under international humanitarian law and stop indiscriminate attacks on Ukraine, quote, in the name of humanity, which I totally agree with. But I'm not, not going to go on now about the UN, but um, I completely agree with her there. And I want, yeah, in the name of humanity. So in the name of humanity, just to finish this section off, the Russian Defence Ministry said its forces hit Zaporizhia in a place where foreign mercenaries were quartered. So that's who they are. Uh, now, just finally on the updates, U.S. President Joe Biden last night asked Congress for a further $24 billion. That's almost £20 billion for humanitarian, economic and security assistance to Ukraine. If approved, that's going to bring the U.S.'s total aid contribution to Ukraine to more than $113 billion, 113, since the full-scale invasion began. And that funding is expected to be split 13 billion in security assistance, just over seven in economic and humanitarian, and just over three to fund infrastructures in countries affected by Russia's invasion. Now, I'm going to turn now. I'm very pleased to introduce Anne Robles, long-time listener to the pod, one of the first members of Ukraine Frontline. Anne, welcome, 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 welcome to the pod. Thanks for getting up so early. How's the weather? How's the weather in Colorado this morning? And can you tell us about Ukraine Frontline, how it all started? I think when we were chatting, you told me your first bundle of support to Ukraine was a suitcase full of shampoo and bandages, I seem to remember. But uh, welcome anyway. Thank you so much um, for having me on the podcast today. Um, the weather is um, wonderful in Colorado. So I appreciate even at 6 a.m. I appreciate you um, allowing me to come on here and speak about Ukraine Frontline. Um, we um, started as a kind of an internet grassroots effort that we then formalized into an NGO. And it kind of really all started with our contact in Keep. His name is uh, Mikola. And he used to stream on Reddit platforms about his life in Ukraine. And he had, a, you know, a good following. And, you know, once the, you know, war started and once the lead up to the war, he would stream several times a day talking about the situation and his thoughts and feelings. And then right as the invasion happened, you know, a lot of people were reaching out to him, seeing if he was okay, myself included. And that's when he used that contact to form a group of us to help him get supplies to his friends who were in the territorial defense that were immediately called up um, into action. And from there, it's kind of snowballed into this NGO where we are um, getting supplies over to Ukraine um, that are much needed. A lot of them, you know, are purchased here in North America where the supplies are more in abundance and then taken over to Ukraine and delivered on the front lines. And one of the reasons why we call it front lines is because Nicola does go out to the front lines to deliver these supplies directly to the troops wherever they're at. Um, so it really is going directly there. It's 
You know, it did start as suitcases. We came together and and got a lot of donations sent over to a contact in Texas who also has become the president of front Ukraine Frontline. And then we sent that first shipment over to Poland, where we did have a volunteer who flew with those. She flew into Poland with a suitcase, several, probably about five or six suitcases packed full of supplies, and then basically drove to the border across the border of Ukraine when it was still relatively unstable in the beginning couple months just to get these supplies delivered directly to Mikola, who then was able to get them distributed to where they needed to go. So that's like the first wave that we did. You know, we call it luggage logistics because a lot of it is not only is it packing stuff in suitcases and getting it over there, and this was mainly done before shipments resumed to Ukraine. Now we use a combination of both. We're able to use a company called Dnipro LLC. And then we also have individuals who volunteer that are able to put all of this, um, all of the supplies into their suitcases and fly it over. Thanks. Now you were telling me yesterday when we were chatting that you, you respond to the request from the from the front that's specifically where the where the list comes from. And I had to look down, and, and I'm delighted to see there's there's beef jerky and all the rest of it because I love beef jerky, but all those kind of things. But you were saying much more seriously that actually, and I think we're, I think we've grown up enough here on this pod to be able to have this conversation. That you're saying a lot of people are asking for body bags. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and about if you have any any better idea than than us on exactly the toll that is uh, being extracted from from Ukraine's young men and women during this war? Yes. So, you know, it really did start with medical supplies, which was really needed, especially at the beginning of the war. And even now, I know a lot of people are saying, you know, as you mentioned, 24 billion in aid is going over to Ukraine. So a lot of times I have people asking me, well, why should I donate? Why is this needed if we're sending all of this money over? Well, I like to think of it as like it's government to government and this is people to people. So we do get these requests from the front line. It started as cat tourniquets, chest seals, Israeli bandages. Cat tourniquets especially are important with all the artillery firing going on, it usually takes one or two of those to get a soldier stabilized and be able to get them to off to the hospital to get care. But until they can get them stabilized and stop the bleeding, then that is, it's not going to help unless they can get that taken care of. So that's how it started. And then we started to get other requests. It started to progress to night sites, drones. We did winter uniforms. We've even to the extent of, you know, we've got a couple pallets worth of Bare parts that someone has donated for an MRAP, which is a mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles that is needed to go over there. But recently, you know, we have a group of us that have a separate little WhatsApp chat room where we're communicating with each other above and beyond what we have for Ukraine Frontline. And we do have an individual who has been over there working and helping out with on the front lines in some very scary situations. And it was recently brought up that that unfortunately body bags were one of the items that they were um, coming up short on, which is, you know, it is a sober reminder that there is a lot of loss of life on the Ukrainian side, as much as there is on the Russian side, as much as we don't like to think about it. But that is why it is crucial that we're getting these supplies over to them consistently so that the medics over there from the Foreign Legion and some of these other groups that that we support that I'll talk about in a second are able to to continue trying to save as many as possible um, to get them stabilized and um, onto the hospital. 
Yeah, I um, can imagine the, the requirement for tourniquets in particular is exceptionally high. I remember when a lot of our logistic drivers, so the truck drivers in Iraq and Afghanistan, they would open their tourniquet, they would, they would, they would loop it around. Basically, for those that don't know, a tourniquet is like just a big, a big belt, effectively, that you, you put around your, your limb, your leg or your arm if, you're, if you have a catastrophic bleed and it just, just closes down the arteries to stop the blood leaving your body you can't have it on for very long because you can kill the 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 arm or the leg that you're hopefully going to save but it does the most important thing is to stop you from uh, from bleeding out but they would these guys and girls would would wear their tourniquets the the drivers this is because they were they would be preparing for roadside bombs or the ieds improvised explosive devices and they they didn't want to then have to be shuffling around trying to open a tourniquet packet all the rest of it so they they were already driving driving with these things wrapped around the top of their thighs and on their arms and so on so you know i mean a pragmatic solution and obviously they didn't all need to be used but when they needed to be used thank god they were they were ready but the point i'm making is that that they would they would open the packet so they were no longer sealed and they were no longer uh, you know totally clean so so the more tourniquets that can be sent out they're, they're not all going to be used, but they're all going to be that basically have to be thrown away afterwards. So, a particular plea there for me, I think, for for tourniquets. But just one more for me, if I if I may, um, Anne. How, as an organisation, a non-profit, how do you give confidence to folk that want to uh, help financially support Ukraine financially? How do you give confidence to them that that your organisation are not are not there as a false front? You're not scamming people out of money. You are genuine. You are who you are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because, like in any walk of life, there's going to be some grifters trying to trying to make money out of this. How do you establish your bona fides with people who who want to to help? And where can people find you if they do want to help? Absolutely. So one of the reasons why Ukraine Frontline came to be was so that we could address that when we were asking for money in the beginning and assistance. Naturally, people's first inclination is to think, well, is this a scam? So that's why we did come together to join in this. And and we found it. It's a 501c3. So it is a certified nonprofit in the United States. So individuals who live within the United States who make donations to us, that is tax deductible. We also are, you know, all volunteers. So everybody that does any work for Ukraine Frontline, myself and the other board members, it's 100% on our own time and we don't have any overhead. So we've got four board members. We each sit in a different time zone, just how it worked out. We've got one in Nevada, myself here in Colorado, one in Texas, one in Virginia. And so we're all doing this out of our home. So we have basically no overhead. So pretty much every dollar that is donated and every item that is donated goes over to Ukraine. You know, we do post updates. So as deliveries are made by um, Mikola, you know, we will take pictures. Of course, we blot out um, the faces of those who are fighting and try to blur out some of the location. But we do post the deliveries of the items that are donated. So I do have a wish list on Amazon that people can go to and purchase items that are shipped to me. And then I, in turn, will ship that to a contact in New Jersey who ships them directly to, to Mikola in Ukraine. And so I document everything that I get and I'll post it on social media. And then once it gets received in Ukraine, we also post pictures of that. So you can kind of follow how the stuff starts in the United States and how it gets over there to seeing it in the hands of the Ukrainian fighters, which for me, I think is really cool. You know, a lot of the stuff that I bought, you know, during the wintertime, 
we did a, a big push for Burt's Bees because they have really great chapstick. And in the wintertime, hand salvin chapstick is something that a lot of people don't think about that the soldiers could use. And so we did a big push for that. So it was really cool to see all the stuff that I had purchased then in the hands over within a month over there being utilized um, by by the team. So it really is, you know, we're very transparent um, in that so that you can see that, you know, and we do have, you know, specific units that we support. So for instance, we have recently purchased about $12,000 worth of TACMED supplies that we sent over and delivered to the 5th Separate Assault Brigade, which is an elite um, brigade that was formed shortly after the start of the full-scale war. And then on top of that, we did another $10,000 worth of um, TACMED donations, which is tactical medicine, you know, to the International Legion. So recently that was about over you know, 20,000. At the beginning of the war, we did do a, a big donation to Kiev Central Emergency Hospital, in which, you know, I made a video about that of, you know, you know, interviewing the individual, the doctor over there that we delivered those supplies to. We also deliver to um, the Hospitaller's Medevac unit, um, as well as the 72nd, the Honor Detachment of the Da Vinci Wolves, and much, much more from there. So we do on our, um, we do have a fact sheet and we do so we list out who we are going to deliver those items to, you know, and we've recently donated as far as, as I said, we've progressed into night sites and drones on top of the, the, the medicine, the tactical medicine first aid, because that is something that it's really important that these um, units are able to get a hold of that. It gives them a really big advantage over the Russians to be able to have night sights and be able to, to you know, spot them at night as well as the drones for reconnaissance. You know, I know that they've got, you know, not every of these units gets, you know, stuff, all of that funding that is going from the United States to Ukraine, it's, you know, it takes a long time for it to funnel down to these individual units if it ever does. So a lot of those supplies are coming from organizations like Ukraine Frontline. And I know there's several other out there that are, you know, raising money and getting this stuff over um, and delivered to them. Um, we did um, recently deliver a drone signal amplifier to the third um, and then also radio. So we did handheld and vehicle radios um, to the fifth so that they are able to communicate with each other, not only from a walkie-talkie standpoint, but from vehicle to vehicle. Um, that is, you know, and we're, like I said, the transparency behind that of doing the updates and showing the pictures so that you can see exactly where your money or donated items are going allows us to kind of, you know, basically the proof is in the pudding. You can see where that is going and rest assured that all of that money that you're donating goes to the Ukraine it goes to the Ukrainian, um, the fighters. It goes to the International Legion. We do support a. And we're working actually. We're working in tandem with um, a high-ranking legionnaire in the International Legion, and we're fulfilling needs for American and British volunteers that are fighting. In addition to everything that we supply for Ukraine, so it's really making an effort to get as much as we can to those who need it. So, and where you can find us at to answer that question is so we do have a website, UkraineFrontline.org where you have the ability to donate. You can set up a one-time donation. You can do monthly donations. We are doing a fundraiser specifically to be able to get a truck over there to be able to facilitate these deliveries. So we've got that up on our website. We also do other avenues for fundraising. Um, so upcoming things that we're doing as far as a fundraising effort is we do have an online auction coming up. And you know within that online auction, there's, there's going to be sculptures and small 
smaller art pieces and bottle openers, necklaces that were created from a Russian rocket that actually struck a stabilization point in Tourette's near Bakhmut in September. Um, and this was a stabilization point that was largely manned by doctors from the 5th. Although that rocket did fail to cause significant damage, a doctor who was working with the 5th sent that um, off to a blacksmith in Germany who was able to create art objects from that. So with that, all of that is going to go back to the medical service of the 5th. Um, another thing that we'll have up for auction in that online auction is we've got um, photographs from a photo journalist called Christopher Ochigany. And he's the one who took a picture of a woman who rescued a bunch of disabled dogs from Bucha um, early on in the full-scale war, um, which is now a, a mural in Kiev. So he has donated some prints of some well-known images, and those are also going to go towards the 5th. And then also some trophies and treasure boxes from an artist that's based out of Bucha who creates the trophies and small practical items like keychains from Russian material that was destroyed in the Battle of Kiev. We also have, you know, he's a volunteer like us, and he is also working to get humanitarian and military aid um, to whomever is needing that. So that's the different ways that we are raising money and awareness. So there's a lot of different avenues as far as straight up donations or participating in an online auction. So that's different ways that we are focusing on, on raising that money. And then finally, we do have coming up in October, we'll be organizing Ukrainian Freedom Fest in Dallas to bring more awareness to what's going on in Ukraine. You know, we're getting to be close to a year and a half into this war. And we want to make sure that people understand that it's still going on and there is still a great need for our support ongoing. And so we just want to make sure that part of that is that awareness that people understand that sometimes it's faded from the news cycle, but that doesn't mean that it's going, that anything is stopped. It's still going full scale. And we need to make sure that we are supporting you know, the, the people of Ukraine, those who are fighting both international and the Ukrainians. Sure, we, should, we sure do. Thanks, Ham. Thanks so much for that. We'll come back to you at the end for final thoughts, if you're able to stick around. If you need to dash off to work, I completely understand it. But for now, let's... Um, Gareth, welcome, welcome. Te the Telegraph's senior tech reporter. You've been looking at a new report, a new report from Ukraine's SBU, the Internal um, Intelligence Agency, about how Russia is attacking Ukrainian comms, and in particular, a specific piece of malware they've tried to design to go after Starlink. What can you tell us about that? Thanks, Dom. Yes. So this is a new report published this week by the SBU looking uh, or revealing details of Russian malware uh, that they've been uh, combating in the ongoing cyber war, which kind of bubbles below <coughs> below the surface of the of the conflict, um, which we see in the headlines and the pictures and the videos day to day. Now, the malware, they've actually released sort of brief details of four or five different strains of malware. And the reason that they do this is to... You know, give all their technical personnel and Western, uh, Western security companies as well the, the ability to know what they're looking for, brief descriptions of how these pieces of malicious software work, what sort of things they're targeting and so on. Now, the, in, the most interesting part of this, and I should prefix this, this segment by saying that I'm writing about this in a little more length in the Sunday Telegraph, so, so do pick up the, the paper this weekend. <laughs> the most interesting part of this is that amongst the malware strains that the SBU have detailed and identified and explained the inner workings of, is one they call STL, which is specifically written to target Starlink or to gather data from the Starlink satellite system. 
As we know, throughout the conflict, Ukraine has been quite reliant on Starlink to keep its domestic and battlefield communications going and is quite an important part of the Ukrainian military communications infrastructure. And we've done a lot of writing about how how Starlink has has appeared to waver in its commitments a few months ago, highlighting how much it costs them to, to keep the system online and all that. But we haven't seen much, and this is where this is interesting now, we haven't seen much in terms of precisely how the Russians are targeting Starlink. And this piece of malware, they call it STL, the SBU, is specifically developed to operate on on tablets which the, which the Ukrainian armed forces are using to communicate with Starlink. Now, just to sort of give a bit of background here. When you set up a Starlink terminal, there's an app that comes with it, which you install you know, if you're in a peacetime area, you install it on your mobile phone and you get the dish up and running and off you go. That's internet connectivity. It's meant to be a fairly quick and seamless experience, which people of, of little technical knowledge, such as myself, can, can cope with and get on with. In the Ukrainian military context, of course, you're using specific dedicated tablets, which have, to oversimplify it a bit, a good antivirus software on it to prevent people like the Russians from getting in and tampering with the device. This piece of malware is specifically developed, and it says here in the report, to operate on systems with mobile ARM architecture. And that refers to the design of the chips that run the tablets, which also reveals to us that this is a low-level piece of malware. This is something that's developed specifically to infiltrate these devices running these exact processor chips to, to, to keep them functioning. How this malware works is, broadly speaking, it gets inside the device and it connects to Starlink via the internal network. Now, when you set up the Starlink app, when you start communicating with the terminal and the satellites and all the rest of it, it, it obviously sets up a, a technical language, a communications tunnel. This piece of malware aims to get inside that communications tunnel and what it does then is that it starts collecting data about the system, pulling out uh, interesting details, you know, like... Um, trying to think how to how to uh <laughs> so i'm looking here at a piece of a piece of computer code in effect which the ukrainians have reproduced with all, all sorts of very interesting things that don't quite lend themselves to being uh, briefly and clearly explained in plain english for the listeners of a podcast but it pulls out uh, by the look of it about sort of 20 or 30 different categories of data speed of connection which secure portals the Starlink app's connecting to in a way I suppose glancing at this it could be seen as mapping out the uh, you know the which bit of the Starlink network that app is connected to and if that data as is, as is designed into this piece of malware uh, if that data is then beamed back to the Russians for further analysis and exploitation that can help them map out you know how many Starlink terminals are in use, how many users have gotten deployed which in turn if you're able to plot that on a map uh, by perhaps using a, a separate strain of malware to, to pull the uh, device's GPS location, you can then plot out potentially the locations of things such as headquarters, communication nodes, important uplink locations that might that may be handling backhaul traffic for the um, communications infrastructure in that, f- that area of the battlefield. So this, I mean, and, and the, uh, the SBU does explicitly conclude, this malware is used for intelligence purposes. So this is not a case of you know, a piece of... Um, piece of malware that's got out in the wild and has accidentally ended up on uh, some, somebody's, some unlucky person's Starlink tablet. This is deliberately targeted by the Russian intelligence services and has been written specifically, developed from the ground up for that purpose. And it's through these little details, these, these sort of, this is a piece of, of malware targeting Starlink, it's through these little details, or you know, there are other things I've, I've mentioned here, it's talking about how they are developed to target the Android operating system in particular. 
that shows the length to which the Russians are going to compromise Ukrainian battlefield comms, not only to, you know, to, to spy on them and to, to map them out, as I, as I mentioned there, but also it gives them the ability to look for weaknesses which enable them to shut them down. We know earlier in the war that the, um, the cyber components of, of the Russian attacks was very much focused on destruction. It was, a, it was a, what we were seeing from the um, Russian security services was types of malicious software that were developed to destroy computer systems, just go in and delete absolutely everything. You know, it's equivalent of, of sticking a, a digital sledgehammer through the hard drive, in effect. So there is the potential here to see that kind of malware that's deploying could be paving the way for that kind of ongoing digital attack to degrade uh, Ukrainian units' abilities to communicate in the field, to relay vital data up and down between commanders and frontline units. There are other malware types detailed in this report. Some of them are there to, to ensure system persistence, as one called NetD. When we say system persistence, we basically mean it's a piece of malicious software that will get itself onto a target device and then defeat any attempts by the user to either detect or remove it. Typically, these things disguise themselves as legitimate system files. The malware authors in Russia will give them names that are intended to blend in with ordinary system files and hide them within folders already present on the device within the operating system. It's all, all means of camouflage, but if you know what you're looking for, which is to say if you've already got an image of exactly what that device should have on it, you therefore know what should not be there or what may have been added surreptitiously after the event. So that's how the Ukrainians and the, you know, doubtless their Western uh, compatriots in the, in the um, cybersecurity industry are well, as well uh, are able to find these things, track them down, and then reverse engineer them and expose their innermost workings to the world. What else? We have Tor malware, and that's an interesting, unusual one. Tor, the onion router, is, is I suppose you, you call it the dark web, really. Tor is, is, a, is a web browser service which you use to access the dark web. And by the dark web, we just mean uh, websites which are not accessible to ordinary search engines and which work, work through a slightly different set of technical things. That's a very brief overview there. Malware that targets Tor, what it does, the purpose of Tor is that you can get onto the internet or part of the internet without easily being surveilled. Essentially, it bounces your connection to the web through a whole different set of computers to obfuscate your your actual starting location or your actual presence on a particular part of a network or you know, mobile network or internet local area wire connection anything like that so a piece of malware targeting tor which is intended to grant remote access to that tor device can give you if you are the attacker deploying that piece of malware uh, a bit of an insight into what that user is doing on tors defeating that obfuscation that ability to hide who you are what you're doing what you're uploading and downloading from Tor or via Tor. Now, we haven't seen much in the way of how Ukraine has been using Tor to date, for the obvious reason it's the dark web. <laughs> we are in the dark. But the fact that the Russians are deploying malware specifically to discover the Tor, you know, hidden Tor services and to gain remote access to Tor you know, devices with Tor being used on them suggests that there may be an interesting dark web component to the cyber war, which, well, I may, I may go away and do, do a bit of investigation on that one. Other malware strains that they have released and talked about, many of these are just to gain remote access to a device. Once you've got remote access to a device, as I've, as I've already skated over here, that opens the door to do all kinds of other malicious things for intelligence gathering or for cyber attack purposes to disable devices or cause them to function in unusual ways to interfere with programs on them or subtly alter files stored on them.
There's another one here, W gets piece of malware, which is to download a <laughs> the Mirai banking Trojan, which is a very interesting one. Trojans are pieces of malicious software, malware again, where you can compromise a device and you can basically make it do things that you want it to do rather than the user wants to do. The Mirai botnet, which was what this piece of a particular piece of malware called WGET plugs into here, is a, is a well-known malware network, actually, which the West has been fighting against for years, mainly known for being deployed by Russian criminals. So this is an interesting sort of uh, wider picture thing here. We do know that a lot of Russian cyber criminals suddenly found themselves very closely aligned to Russia's strategic cyber aims in the early part of the war. And there was a lot of research, and a lot of chatter at the time about whether this was patriotic Russians chipping in for what they perceived as to be the greater good, or whether there was an element of coercion here, whether known cyber criminals and had their collars felt by the Russian security and police services and were told, you will now work for us. So the inclusion in this uh, SBU report released this week uh, of details of a piece of malware that is designed to download the Mirai Trojan onto uh, Ukrainian military devices is interesting. That could potentially be showing that there are cyber criminal elements within the, the Russian you know, cyber intelligence services, the Russia's, Russian state hackers, who have got an eye to, to thinking, oh, well, you know, we're doing, the, we're doing the official work here, but could we maybe just plant some of our own tools for use in our own time when we're off the clock, so to speak? So that's, you know, there's, and there's a couple of strains here. There's also the W.SH strain detailed by the SBU, which does a, a similar thing, downloads the Mirai Trojan. So I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this stuff, and, I'm, and listeners, I certainly hope you are too, because it gives us that unique insight into not only you know, the sort of the the blow by blow, this is what's happening day by day, minute, minute by minute. But with a bit of bit of awareness of the field and a bit of creative thinking and a bit of informed speculation, you know, why would they install this? What could the end goal be? You can use malware and you can use these, these reports that detail malware being deployed by the Russians to gain a, a better insight into what it is they're hoping to do, what their medium and longer term aims might be. So that is the, the value of the SBU's Malware Report release this week. And as I say, I'm writing about this in a bit more depth in uh, this weekend's Sunday Telegraph. So listeners, I strongly encourage you all to, to get on the website, to buy a physical copy of the paper if you're able to, and um, you will learn more. Thank you very much, Dom. Thanks, guys. That's uh, something to do with computers, right? <laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, just before we leave you, just before we leave you... Um, so Wagner, or more more broadly, Prigozhin's Empire, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, um, he, as you say, you've just been talking about the, the, the sort of various franchises of Russian cyber criminal networks and what have you. Since the, 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 all the turmoil in Wagner, since the, the mutiny without any bounty a couple of, couple of months ago, has there been a noticeable downtick, uptick, anything, anything shifted in that side of it that we could attribute to, to turmoil ripples in the in the Wagner Empire, Prigozhin Empire? That's a very good question, Dom. Earlier this year, certainly the British government did say that Wagner-like cyber groups are, are turning their sites, their cyber sites on the UK, which by, by simple inference therefore means that we know there have been private cyber mercenary groups operating on the, Russia's, on the Russian side within the conflict. It's, it's a good one because Wagner are mainly known for their sort of physical, if I can put it this way, real world military operations. We haven't seen a great deal of research detailing Wagner's own cyber capabilities. And the, the, you know, the, the, the speech, I think it was by Oliver Dowden, if memory serves correctly, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, 
Uh, he was speaking in Belfast. He said that there is an official notice out to UK critical infrastructure operators warning of these Wagner-style attacks. But it's not something that they really seem to specialise in. There's a lot of it's, there's a great divide, I think, between the the cyber criminals who are operating against the West from within Russia pre-war and the organised mercenary groups, which which I find strange because the the primary motivation for any any mercenary, of course, is you know, money, financial reward, the ability to get your hands on wealth and trappings of power and what have you and so forth. You know, it's a personal enrichment thing. The cyber criminals, of course, are making vast sums of money. I mean, there are, there are pictures out there of, of Russian cyber criminals who are openly driving around major cities in you know, Lamborghinis and other such top-end cars bought with the proceeds of their crimes. They were flaunting their criminal wealth. So I find it strange that an organisation such as Wagner, with its great interest in all that sort of you know, dodgy side of life, if I can put it that way, hasn't really visibly adopted much to do with the, the cyber warfare uh, or indeed ongoing cyber operations. I think it's quite likely that they have done a, got some sort of cyber capability in-house or perhaps on tap, maybe for intelligence, espionage, rec- reconnaissance purposes, and figuring out you know, what their, their real-world opponents are likely to be up to at a given point. But no, we haven't seen a great deal from Wagner themselves on the cyber front. But then again, as we have seen that Wagner themselves have, I think, perhaps not not been as prominent as they once were after Mr. Prigozhin's little drive up the road towards Moscow uh, early this year. Perhaps that's uh, <laughs> perhaps that's just as well, really. Lovely. Thanks, Gareth. And we will, of course, cycle back to you to get all the uh, all, uh, track those stories as they're going through. You are the you're the only person who can explain <laughs> explain it to us. But thank you. And. Just before we go to final thoughts and blatantly magpieing one of Francis's trademarks, good ideas, on the back of my Gordon Brown rant yesterday and thinking about Anne's work and the theme of doing what you can with what you've got from where you are to show Russia that Ukraine has more friends than they do, I'd like to read out a short email we've received from, from a listener, Paul Parsons in Northamptonshire here in the UK. So Paul says, hi Paul if you're listening, Paul says, Relatively early last year, you ran a great little story about West Country farmers delivering pickups to Ukraine, which was the genesis of a similar endeavour here in Northamptonshire. Yesterday, we returned from our third trip, having taken out 10 pickups, an ambulance and medical and similar aid for the front of around £200,000. A drop in the ocean, but appreciated and of some use. The purpose of this email is not to shout about our endeavours, but to demonstrate what your podcast can and does achieve, not only in terms of being hugely informative, thank you, but also how it can encourage individual effort in support of Ukraine. Well done, and I hope you keep it up. Well, thanks, Paul. We will keep it up. I'm glad you find this informative, and and I'm glad you think we've helped in some small way to encourage you to start your endeavour. Your next trip, I believe, is November. Best of luck with that. Please do stay in touch. And we'll include a link to your uh, your Just Giving page in the um, in the episode notes for today. So thanks, Paul. But on to final thoughts quickly, because I know Anne's got to dash off to work. Gareth, can we uh, start with you, please? Quick final thoughts. Final thoughts. The cyber war continues in Ukraine. It's never quite as high profile as the launching of missiles, bombs and rockets. It's never quite as tangible as watching the front line moving eastwards as Ukraine's counteroffensive continues to grind the Russians back from occupied territory. But it continues nonetheless. The cyber war is still there. It's still bubbling away. I strongly suspect the cyber war will continue long after Ukrainians have recaptured their country and a proper peace is concluded, which results in Ukraine's original borders being re-established. For the moment, all we can do is sit and watch and hopefully the uh, 
good agencies like the SBU and their Western helpers and assistants will continue to detect what the Russians are up to, dismantle it and expose its workings to us and show us all what they're really doing. Thanks, Gareth. And Anne, back to uh, early morning Colorado. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Thanks so much for being a, being a listener and an all-around bon oeuf. As a guest, would you like the final final word today, please? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dom. I think that, you know, my final thoughts for today, especially in light of yesterday's horrific attacks that resulted in the loss of, of innocent lives, civilian lives, is to, you know, not let this, not let everything going on in Ukraine desensitize you. I know it's become easy. You hear it every day. You see it on the news. It's just becoming part of the mainstream, but it's still horrific. And we need to work to get Ukraine across the finish line, so to speak, to get them to get Russia out of their country. Um, to really, you know, not only is it, you know, are they fighting for their freedom and their sovereignty, but they're also keeping Russia at bay from going to the rest of Europe, especially the non-NATO states where there wouldn't be as much involvement, such as Moldova. So it's just, I mean, this is really a war where these people are fighting for their freedom. And a lot of people, as you know, as soon as this war started, walked away from their profession and went and joined and started fighting. And, you know, not only that, there's a lot of foreigners that kind of dropped what they were doing. To, to go over there and support the cause and fight. Um, so for those of us who are unable to do that, as much as I wish, you know, at my age, I could go over there and fight. I cannot. But what I can do is help spread awareness um, and, you know, be continuous with that um, education so that we can get um, donations raised and make sure that those who are fighting are getting everything that they need. We also do humanitarian aid. So it's just really important not to get war fatigue at this point. And donations are down across the board. It's not just us that are having a little bit of a trouble drumming up donations. A lot of other NGOs out there who do similar work to us are hitting a lull. So hopefully this will help spread awareness to know that there are people across the world World that are doing everything they can in, in creative ways to get those on the front lines what they need and just to continue to support that even if it's five or ten bucks a month every little bit that you that you can donate will add up and potentially save lives thank you to gareth and Anne, and remember to click on the links in the show notes for early access to our interview with renowned historian sir hiplocky ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk and we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. The executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.
Listen to this Acast show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.